Hey, so if you're just joining us, uh, we are making our way pretty slowly through uh, Peter's first letter to a group of Christians in Rome, which is, of course, God's words to us Christians here in Edenvale today. And we are currently at a a, a part in the book uh, that includes some practical applications of what we are calling distinct Christian living. It's kind of Peter's theme, uh, distinct living. And we're, we're talking about some practical implications of, of, of what that means. So last week, we looked at our responsibilities as Christian citizens of this country. Uh, that's what the passage dealt with. And we saw that to be distinct Christian citizen means to, well, to firstly realize that Ultimately, our allegiance, our loyalty is directly to King Jesus. We are a new nation under him. We are his people. But King Jesus says to us, I want you to be subject to every human institution, including the government. And we need to do that willingly, joyfully, and do as much good as we can in the country that we find ourselves in. So that was last week. Uh, we also happened to last week kind of scan over the passage for today, which last week I said to you, uh, r- it relates to our work situation, so employer-employee relationships, which is only partly true, which I'll explain to you in a little bit. Um, we also scanned over next week's passage as well, uh, which is a passage that addresses specifically the woman in our midst, and and wives, and what it means to be a distinct woman and wife in society. And I am uh, very excited to tell you we have a very special guest speaker who will be uh, doing that particular teaching. Uh, she's not a guest. It is Megan Braithwaite. She's one of the elders of this church, uh, one of the best Bible teachers that I know, and she will be dealing with this passage, uh, which is a passage that um, is so... Uh, personal to me, uh, because, and I don't, I don't get the chance, I don't get the chance to have my wife with me in church as the very much these days. Um, previously you would have known she's in the back and you would have heard our kids screaming their heads off. Where, where are they, by the way? <laughs> um, so I just want to say, one of the reasons when I was, you know, considering marrying Kristen, this passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, I mean, there was lots that I loved about her. I really wanted to be married to her. I was kind of waiting for some kind of divine inspiration. And so First Peter chapter 3, where it speaks about, let your beauty be the, the inner beauty of the heart, uh, the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. Right, that's this lady over here, my wife. I was like, yes, I'm going to marry her. And seven years later, I do not regret that decision. Uh, so this passage really is special to me, but uh, Megan will be preaching uh, on it. I think it's going to carry a different kind of authority to have a woman addressing women on this uh, passage. Uh, it's also just really hard. So I thought, well, let's delegate it to those that have master's degrees and things. The following week, we're going to pick it up uh, with a section on marriage with I'll pick it up again with dealing with the verse that speaks to the men and to the husbands. And then we'll pretty much be out of the practical section of First Peter. But for today, we're, in, we're still in chapter 2 and specifically verses 18 to 25. So turn with me there and let's read. It says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. 
not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So here again is the instruction for a particular group of Christians to be subject, to willingly submit themselves. But this time that instruction is given to servants to be subject to their masters, even if they are crooked and unjust. Now, the servants that are being addressed here in particular are household servants. So the Bible has a few words that it uses to talk about servants, uh, and mainly it's, it's the word slave. We would translate it slave. But in particular, the slaves being addressed here are slaves that worked in households. When we hear the word slaves today, we almost always think about the slavery that existed 18th and 19th century in the Western world, United States, UK, and the Europe, which was a grotesque injustice against humanity that went on for far too long and went on kind of justified in some sections of the church even. However, the slavery that existed in first century Rome, that's when this letter was written, was very different to the slavery that we think of in 18th and 19th century. Make no mistake, though, it was still slavery, but there were some significant differences. For example, one of the big differences is that the slave force in Rome was highly educated for the most part. The slave force consisted of doctors, teachers, lawyers, actors, secretaries. The slaves were not just the people doing the menial jobs. In fact, all of the work done in Rome was done by slaves. Kind of the Roman attitude was that there is no point being masters of the world, which they were in Rome, dominated the world. They were like, there's no point ruling the world and have to do our own work for ourselves. They had this unlimited supply of slaves. And so literally Roman citizens lived in pampered idleness while everybody else did everything, uh, that is the slaves. 
Another difference is that the slaves in first century Rome were not comprised of any particular ethnic group, which is what we think of when we think of more modern slavery. It's kind of whoever the Romans were at war with, whoever they conquered, those guys made up the slaves. Uh, another difference was that slaves could earn some kind of a living and, and save that up and eventually buy their own freedom, albeit after a very long time. So that sounds a little bit better, doesn't it? But it was still enforced servitude. They had no freedom. They had no choice. They had no legal rights whatsoever. And so, in fact, the slaves of Rome, as educated as they might be, even more educated than many of the Roman citizens, were considered the lowest form of society. They were literally referred to as things, not people. Even the supposedly great philosopher Aristotle, who shaped a lot of Western thinking when writing about slaves, writes this. He says, there can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox. And so, nor yet towards a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. That was his philosophy. That was philosophy, the Greco-Roman world at the time. And so because they were the lowest form of society, and because they had no freedom and no rights, they were very often subject to much abuse. That was certainly going on. Not always. There, there are records of particularly slaves in households, like the slaves being addressed here, uh, that maybe were educators in the household, the teachers of the children, that even when they won their freedom would choose to stay with the family because they were considered part of the family. But still, we cannot ignore the fact that the people being addressed here were people living under an immense injustice, often suffering great abuse. And God says to them, these slaves, I want you to be subject to your masters, even the crooked and wicked ones. Now I ask you, does that not sound incredibly unjust? How could God ask them to do that. We would almost wonder if this was kind of what they were living under, like surely there would be something in here about God, you know, kind of inciting some sort of, you know, kind of movement rising up against slavery, that there would be some denouncement of it, whereas it seems to be that he's even condoning it. Isn't God a God of justice? And so why does he seem to condone unjust suffering? Well, that's a pretty good question. And we're going to explore that tonight. You guys probably thought, hey, today's going to be an easier one because it's about work, right? If you were here last week. Um, so did I, by the way, until <laughs> I looked at it a little more carefully. But before we get to the heavy stuff, let's, just, let's talk just for a second. Let's talk about work. Yes, this passage is not directly speaking to us today in an employer-employee relationship because obviously we are not in enforced labor. You do not have to work. 
And, and if your work environment is abusive, you should certainly have the, the freedom to leave. But let's remember that in first century Rome, this was the predominant form of employer-employee relationship. There were no companies, there were no businesses, there, were no, there was no other form of employer-employee relationship. And if the principle of submission applies in this difficult situation, then it certainly must apply to us in a far more free context. Does that make sense? So what this would say to us in an employer-employee relationship is simply this, be subject at work, Willingly, joyfully, doing the best good that you can for your company. And if your boss asks you to do something that would go against the principles of the kingdom of Jesus, remember your ultimate loyalty and allegiance is to King Jesus. And so you stand up for what you believe. And if persecution comes as a result of that, well, then you leave. Otherwise, we put our heads down and Christians are the greatest employees any company could have. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all there is to say. That, that's it. That's, that's all it's there. So let's get to the real message. And the reason we really had to be honest about this, this context is because it uncovers the main message, and the main message goes a lot deeper than work. It even goes deeper than slavery because the main message in this passage is about unjust suffering. You can see that quite clearly, verse 19 and 20. Just have a look there again. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now you might wonder, why did Peter choose to use the context of a household slave to now talk about this far more general subject of unjust suffering? And I think that's because when household slaves in particular, when they converted to Christianity, once that happened, they would incur a whole lot more abuse and unjust suffering because of their conversion. And you can think of a couple of reasons why that would be so. Firstly, because when a slave got converted and came under the lordship of King Jesus, they now realized that their ultimate allegiance, their ultimate loyalty, the one that they submitted to was King Jesus alone. And so masters felt threatened about that. They were like, oh, we'll see. You think you got a new boss who's nice? I'll show you. And so they would incur extra abuse as they now consider themselves directly subject to King Jesus. Also, I would imagine that the threats that masters would use against slaves to get them to do their work that used to work really well, threatening punishment and death, when these slaves became Christians, all of a sudden that tactic did not work so well anymore because these guys would be thinking, well, I am a child of God now. I am a son of the king And I have an imperishable inheritance waiting for me. So go ahead, kill me, because a glorious eternity is waiting me. For real. The threats of the masters just really didn't carry much force anymore now that they were converted to Christians. And another reason is when these Christians, when these followers of Jesus started to gather together in churches, 
a very curious thing happened. Slaves would go into churches and find that, lo and behold, they were no longer considered the lowest form of society, that in fact, they were considered of equal value and dignity to anyone else, even a Roman citizen. And they were included as people of equal value and dignity. And in fact, slaves could become leaders in the church and therefore have some kind of authority over perhaps Roman Christians in the church. And so we know, for example, that one of the earliest bishops of Rome was a man named Callistus, who was a slave. He became the bishop of Rome, only in the church. Only amongst the followers of Jesus was this societal injustice turned around. And and so masters got nervous and Rome got anxious. And so persecution started in earnest against the Christians who were turning around social order. And so the point is this, the subject of this passage is not so much about work, it's not even so much about slavery, it's about the increased and unjust suffering that comes with being a believer in Jesus Christ. This passage goes on to tell us at least five things about unjust suffering. Firstly, unjust suffering is our calling. Peter's used the word calling already. We've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. He'll use the word calling many more times. But in verse 21, he uses it this way. For to this unjust suffering, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, and he's now given you an example that you would follow in his steps. If you are a Christian, then you have been called to suffer a lot of the time, unjustly. Which means that if you are experiencing unjust suffering, that it's not a sign that God is in fact displeased with you. Actually, it could be a sign that you're a real Christian following in the footsteps of Jesus. The reason I say that is because often we think that, don't we, when unjust suffering comes our way. And I'm not just speaking about persecution for standing up for what we believe in because Perhaps our failure, we don't experience a lot of that. But even when we as Christians just suffer and it's just, it doesn't make sense. It's unjust. Things do not go according to plan. We lose somebody and we're like, why would this happen to me? And maybe we think it's something I did wrong. Whereas in fact, it could be because we are following our calling. Did we ever think that when we stepped into the footsteps of Jesus, that those footsteps would lead us in any direction other than a cross and a grave and glory beyond it. I mean, does it make sense? Are we going to step into literal footsteps and go, oh, hey, where's this going? Well, we know where it's going. Our calling as Christians is to suffer unjustly. Secondly, unjust suffering is a gracious thing. Verse 19 and repeated in verse 20, for this is a gracious thing when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Other translations say, for this finds God's favor when you suffer unjustly. To suffer unjustly is a position of favor 
Not to the world, obviously. They wouldn't see it like that, but God does. In his eyes, it's a gracious thing, and he extends his grace to us to enable us to faithfully endure it, and the fruits of that grace is grace in other people's lives. It's actually a bit of a miracle, this whole thing, which is how one pastor described it. He said, I want to say from the outset that this is not merely a rule to be kept, but a miracle to be experienced a grace to be received. I said this last week, it applies today as well. You will never be closer to Jesus than when you are suffering unjustly because you're following him. It is in fact a sign that grace is working in your life. Number three, this one might encourage you a little bit. Unjust suffering trusts in the justice of God. So verse 22 and 23, he committed no sin, no deceit was found on his mouth. When people mocked him, he did not return the insult. When he suffered, he didn't threaten them, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. There's so much in these two verses, so many amazing things to just Think about Jesus as God on earth, tempted in everywhere we were, going through intense suffering and never sinned. Never. Not even when people mocked him did he like, you know, like have a comeback. Like how hard is that? How did he manage that? Well, here's how. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. See, you can do this. We can do this. Because we know that God is just. And so when he calls us to suffer unjustly, it's not because he's condoning injustice, but because he will effect justice, but in his way and at his time. And when God does affect justice, he will do it in a way that is far more effective than we ever could. See, this passage does not condone injustice. It's just saying, hey, for now, submit yourself, entrust yourself to God who is just. He is. Just by the way, God doing it in his own time, because for the most part, as far as I've seen, there is a far time, there's a big time lapse between the injustice happening and God effecting his justice on the perpetrators of the injustice. Oftentimes, that length of time is to give opportunity to the perpetrator of the injustice to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and find forgiveness and healing and redemption and restoration themselves, which we don't like. Eh? Just admit it. When I was saying God will inflict his justice and vengeance, we're like, yeah. And in his time, and often that time is because he wants to give people a chance, just like he gave us as perpetrators of injustice, the chance to find his healing. And so we're just going to have to trust God and his justice. Hey? That's what Jesus did. Number four, unjust suffering. It's not just like calling. It's not just following in the footsteps of Jesus. It goes deeper than that. It replicates or broadcasts or demonstrates or makes visible the heart of the gospel message. Peter does something remarkable here for someone who was supposedly an illiterate fisherman 
Because in this passage, if, if you read through it, if you've been around church for, for a little while, you, you might notice some of these words. He committed no sin, no deceit in his mouth when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Uh, he bore our sins in his body. You might, that's familiar Christian language, but those are direct quotations, six of them from Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 12. And if you've been around church for a while, you know that that is probably the clearest prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Right? And so Easter time comes, always Isaiah 53. He was bruised for iniquities. He was crushed for iniquities. That's that passage. And Peter's quoting that and weaving it into his message here. And so you can tell that he's absorbed this, which in a lot of Bibles, the heading of Isaiah 53 is the suffering slave or servant. See, and really Peter's point is, is, hey guys, what happened at the cross was scandalously unjust. That Jesus would bear our sins, he who had zero sin, I mean, he's been detailed about this, he had no sin whatsoever, but he took our sin, he got punished, we got credited with his righteousness. That's scandalously unjust. And we were the beneficiaries of that. And so when you suffer unjustly, faithfully, you are broadcasting, making visible this gospel message that you benefited from. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who, who was ministering at the time that Hitler and the Nazi party was rising in power in, in, uh, in Germany. He was very outspoken against Hitler and the Nazi party, and of course that brought great persecution, and he was ultimately martyred, died for what he believed and what he said. And he said this, the kingdom is to be experienced in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies. You blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would have been spared? That's intense. And that only carries that kind of authority because he ultimately died for what he believed in. So we realize that we have this gift we have this gift that came to the unjust suffering of Christ and we were able to extend that gift to others by faithfully enduring whatever unjust suffering comes our way. Lastly, number five, unjust suffering unleashes the transforming power of that gospel. See, as it's demonstrated, it's made visible, as it comes alive amongst injustice, that alone, the power of the gospel, that alone has the power to actually transform the injustices around. Remember this. It was eventually Christians who abolished slavery. I told you that story last week. William Wilberforce, John Newton, the pastor. It was through them, through 30 years of patiently and enduring unjust suffering, that slavery, which comes out here, was eventually abolished forever. 
This works when Christians distinctly endure unjust suffering, then the transformation that we want, the injustice that we know and when we see turn around, it actually happens. But it happens not through violent rebellion. It happens through submission, which is nuts. Who would figure that? Who would think that that's what would work? But it does. It's kind of like a rebellion, but it's a rebellion against rebellion that brings revolution that is really revolutionary. Do you know what I'm saying? And no one would see this coming, that the transformation of social injustice would come through people, not through violent means, not through political means, but through demonstrating the gospel by being willing to suffer unjustly. This spread all through Rome. Let me give you some some more examples. So there were a lot of barbaric practices in Rome, not just slavery. One of those barbaric practices which involved slaves was what we've seen on TV, the gladiators, which makes for a fun movie, but it was literally entertainment, sport, watching humans kill each other against their will. But it was barbaric. There was a guy, a Christian monk. His name was Telemachus, who, as he was traveling through Rome, noticed this and was outraged at this injustice. And he started trying to get people to not go in. He was literally trying to stop them. And he started yelling, hey. And he started causing quite a scene. And the crowd threw him into the arena. And they stoned him to death. But the emperor, Emperor Honorarius, who was watching this, was so impressed that he issued what became the final edict banning the sport of the gladiator sport in Rome. That's, that's the power of being willing to unjustly suffer and how it can actually transform injustice. So slaves, I mentioned to you, the lowest form of society, not too much higher than slaves, were children. There was a law in Rome at this time, continued for many years, there was a law called the law of exposure. If you had a baby, up till that baby was eight days old, and when you just change your mind, like, oh, this is too hectic, which is like every parent on like day one. <laughs> but up to eight days, you decided, hey, I've changed my mind. You were allowed to discard of that baby on a garbage dump. It was legal. It was called the law of exposure up to eight days. And, and the, the wording around it literally means because up to then, they're really just like plants. Children, like equated to plants. Slaves, tools, children, plants. And so isn't it revolutionary when Jesus then comes and says, those of you who want to be great must be like these children. And let the children come to me, for to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. There was revolutionary, and he blessed them. And so over time, eventually, instead of leaving unwanted babies on dung heaps, they would leave the babies at the doors of churches, because the followers of Jesus knew the value of human life at any age and took care of them. And that's where orphanages started in the church. And by the way, it was a couple centuries later when a Christian emperor finally got rid of the law of exposure. A little bit higher than children and not much. Slaves, children, then just above them, women. Women in Rome at the time were really considered of very little value. There's, there's lots of instances of this. I'm sure you've even seen that a little bit in, in TV and the movies. But we, one letter that 
I came across is of a husband in first century Rome writing to his pregnant wife and he says to her, I'll ask and beg of you to take good care of our baby son. So he's away. And, and so if you deliver the child before I come, before I come, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it, which is really quite common. Do you know there was a law in Rome at the time called the Law of Romulus that stated that a father was legally required to raise any male baby but the females he could dispose of. That law of exposure, no, that's not for the boys. That's only for the women. And then Jesus comes along and Jesus starts inviting women to be his followers too. You know this, right? I know we talk about the 12 male disciples all the time, but you know that he had women disciples too. So Luke 8 even names some of them, like we know the men disciples, the women are named as well. Jesus traveling from town to town, proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. The 12 were with him and also some women, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others, the scripture says. These women, by the way, these women were helping to support the disciples out of their own means, meaning the women were paying the bills. This was fascinating. It was revolutionary that a rabbi, that a leader would have woman disciples. It just, it came to me just this, this past week through just a really another means, but it's fascinating. You know the story of Mary and Martha? You know, you've been around church for a while. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, visiting there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his friends. And Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha's, Martha's busy working in the kitchen. And Martha says to, to Jesus, hey, tell Mary that she should be doing what I'm doing. And we talk about that in various ways. But of course, it never occurred to me before, but that phrase, sitting at the feet for a rabbi, is specifically a discipleship term. We'll still say that today. We sit under teaching. And so when Martha says to Mary, hey, Jesus, tell her to come, because hey, it's not our place to be your disciples. What does Jesus say? That she's chosen the one right thing. She's my disciple, and that will not be taken away from her. You know, the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and anyone in the Gospels is between Jesus and a woman, the woman at the well in Samaria who also happened to be a sinful woman. And I could tell you many other stories of how Rome was shaped, revolutionized all of these injustices by Christians who were willing to suffer unjustly. In fact, going back to the woman, it was because of how the church viewed slaves and women children that led to it being so mocked and disparaged by everyone else, like you see them as valuable, it brought great persecution upon them. Ultimately, today, we have what we have because of Christians who were willing to replicate the gospel by suffering unjustly and real transformation happened because that's the power of the gospel of Jesus. Amen. Father, we pray to you tonight and as we consider This that seems to make no sense, that this way of unjust suffering would produce such transformative fruit and completely revolutionize society. It just seems like it's not the world's way. But it is your way. And we ask you tonight that if this is a gracious thing, that you would extend to us the grace required to faithfully walk in your footsteps, endure whatever unjust suffering comes our way, to do that willingly and even joyfully, trusting you a just God, trusting in our identity as citizens of your kingdom, as your royal priests, as your holy nation, 
as your sons and daughters. Grant to us tonight that faith, that trust. In Jesus' name, amen.